show i'm sean i'm eric and we are the aforementioned vertigais we're checking out the dark side of dc sandman <laughs> hellblazer we're here to recap and preacher <laughs> you know the spiel they've heard it all before today we're covering the first half of world's end not the pirates of the caribbean movie no this is a completely different world's end yeah, my notes on the Pirates of the Caribbean movie, World's End, are completely useless now. <laughs> you watched that whole movie again, huh? <laughs> I could do a whole thing about how the apostrophe is in a different place, but I'm sure that's the content people want to hear. Wait, what's wrong with the apostrophe now? Oh, this isn't world apostrophe S end. It's world's apostrophe. The oh, end of all worlds. Oh, you know, I just, I never uh, noticed that. Not, not one world. So it's not just like a far-flung part of the ocean. Where the afterlife is? You know, it's it's the space between worlds. It's like the bleed. What's that? That's the space between worlds in Warren Ellis's authority. Oh, yeah. I've put everything that I can about Warren Ellis' the authority out of my mind. Okay. In Pirates of the Caribbean, is the world's end what has the stranger shores? They are weird and haunted shores, according to Calypso. <laughs> oh. oh, spoiler warning. That was Tia Delma's Calypso, everybody. Sorry. Yeah, we fucked that up. No, stranger tides. The tides are what's stranger. Yeah. Also the things. Yeah, that's right. That 80s show. <laughs> the show that they went back in time to the 80s to make. Yes, that's right. So we're jumping into Sandman number 51, A Tale of Two Cities. Now this and the next three issues are all written by Neil Gaiman. Sequences at the end are penciled by Brian Talbot and inked by Mark Buckingham. The colors are by Danny Vazo. The tales in each issue, however, have a different artist. Number 51, the tale is illustrated by Alex Stevens. Okay. And the cover of this issue is by Dave McKeon. There's an image of a large house under a sliver of moon, and the image is set up against a wrought iron fence under a tree. Isn't it on a cliff? Is it on a cliff? Isn't it? Oh yeah, the house is on a cliff. Okay. So, we meet somebody here, a man. We will find out later that his name is Brant Tucker. Right, it's going to be a little while before we get these characters' names, but... No, we get Charlene Mooney right away. Oh, you're right. Which is the woman he's with. Right. Man driving, woman sleeping. Yeah, that's the opposite of how it goes. Yeah, so, okay. They're driving through the night. It's 3 a.m. He has apparently broken his promise to wake her and make her take over the driving. This is a thing that we see Neil Gaiman do fairly frequently, where the scene proceeds with the characters sort of obliquely thinking about how they got here. Not a lot of exposition, just hinting at how they came to be here. Right. They are apparently colleagues, nothing more. And then something weird happens, which is that it starts snowing in June. Yeah, and at first it doesn't phase him. I must have really been tired. You see, I didn't think it was weird that it was snowing in June. I just thought, shit, snow, and slowed down to 60. Even though he slows down, though, he still hits a giant beast. I don't think he hits it. I think he swerves to avoid it mm, okay. and goes off the road. In any case, a giant beast runs out into the road and it causes him to crash. Yeah, that's right. And he says he's experiencing the crash in slow motion. 
Yes, he's quite calm, even as he's pretty sure he's about to die. This reminds me of that part where Tina Belcher won't turn the car. I think a lot of things remind me of that. I decided that I simply didn't have time to wake Charlene and apologize to her for killing us both. Wondered just how bright I'd really been, saving the cost of a plane ticket by co-driving Charlene's car back to Chicago. It wasn't even as if we were friends. Right, so he's slipping some details of what these characters are even doing here into the man's last thoughts. It's deftly done. As he's crashing, he hears the radio playing Every Day by Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly famously died in a plane crash. Brant has just mentioned how smart he was to avoid taking a plane. The crash was the subject of American Pie by Don McLean, who also covered Every Day. But that's overthinking it. Gaiman is probably using the lyrics ironically to refer to death here. Every day, it's a getting closer, going faster than a roller coaster. You have a lovely voice. <laughs> That's gonna be really funny if I just dub myself over with Buddy Holly. <laughs> oh, he talks about how right in, in the immediate aftermath of the crash, there's a silence that wasn't a silence. Which I thought was a very evocative phrase. Do you suppose it's in multiple parts? Oh, you're, you're making a reference to the Kingkiller Chronicle. So they crash, it's bad, Brant is pulling Charlene out of the car, she wakes up and yells at him for crashing, which is understandable. You fucked up, Brant. Yeah, you should have, in all the copious time that you had while you were heading to that tree, you should have swerved away from that tree. Well, I think her point is more along the lines of, he should have woken her and let her take over the driving. Oh, you think so? Yeah. I mean, you asshole, you wrecked my car. Why didn't you wake me up? Why didn't you let me drive? You should have woken me up. You should have. Oh, I see. So you're positing that the big monster and the snow in June, none of that stuff would have happened if he hadn't fallen asleep. Well, oh, well, that makes sense because he's heading into basically the world of dreams here. Right. I interpret them as genuinely being in the, the world of World's End, so to speak. But, you know, Charlene doesn't know about any of that stuff. She just thinks that he got tired and crashed the car. Okay. But you're saying it's fair enough that she thinks that. And I, I am disagreeing. But then I remembered that he probably is falling asleep and that's why that's happening. So then I agreed. It's all kind of ambiguous. Charlene thinks she wouldn't have crashed the car, which is probably what most people think. <laughs> yeah. She notices the snow too, so he's not just crazy. And he says, yes, I think the snow is real. Yeah, so if it's a dream, it's like a Silent Hill dream where they're actually in the dream. Yeah. You know what that game had a lot of? Hmm. Snow. Yeah. Maybe Ash, depending. Yeah. So, carrying Charlene, Brant stumbles through the snow. He's looking for a phone until finally he's too exhausted to move and sets her down. When did the hallucinations start? With the snow? With the animals? With the voice? Yeah, so he's collapsed in the snow, he and Charlene, and all of a sudden he hears a call from a pirate. Mighty, if you ask my opinion, a sitting there in the snow is not exactly the smartest thing you could be a doing of all things considerable. Who? Hello? Is somebody there? Where? Here. You mean apart from me? So, Brant says that he's unable to stand, and the voice says, All is glad to oblige, laddie. And then he is pricked in the butt. Yeah, a hedgehog runs off. Right, it's this hedgehog. He helps Brant stand up by pricking him in the butt. And then the hedgehog gets away. Just a talking hedgehog that he ran into there. Do you think the hedgehog is also a pirate? I mean, we don't see his eyes, so he could have an eye patch. Right. Which all pirates have. Yeah. By law. Don't get a very good look at his legs. He could also have a peg leg. Maybe all hedgehogs have peg legs. <laughs> hedgehogs are just made of wood. Seems reasonable. 
I mean, no. all trees are made of wood. Why not all hedgehogs? Well, they're animals. They're not flora. They're fauna. Listen, I'm no botanist. So up the lane, the voice has told him, is the inn. So Brant picks up Charlene and carries her on this old country road. He notes that the highway is gone somehow. To the inn. And there's a sign that says, World's End. A free house. And as Brant walks in, we can hear voices telling stories. Ah, there's a tale I heard once in Abdera about a hungry mirror made of beaten bronze. That old chestnut, you can do better than that, Menton. He walks in and he is greeted by a centaur. Yeah, on the next page we get a look at all of the people in the inn. We see a busty barmaid, a guy in a tracksuit, there's a pirate and a centaur. This pirate is not a hedgehog, he's just a human being. There looks to be a pointy-eared alien over there. It could be an Osferatu, maybe? Oh, yeah. Or an elf. The centaur informs the man that he is a chirurgeon. Yeah, I like this. He asks for a phone, and the centaur says there are no phones here, but if your lady friend needs help, I'm a great surgeon. Except he doesn't say surgeon. He says chirurgeon. Yes. There's a woman in a blue sash here. I don't know if she has a name, but we're going to see her a bunch of times over the rest of the arc. While Chiron, the centaur, takes Charlene away to perform life-saving surgery, this woman offers Brant a drink. Yeah, and insists that he drink it. And we're told that all these people are in the end waiting out the reality storm. Right. And this guy behind Brant on the left here is Thoracon of Fairy, who we've met a couple times before. Yeah, I didn't recognize him in this issue. Not until we get his name in the next issue, and I was like, oh, okay, I know who that is. They tell Brent that there's nothing more he can do for Charlene, and then he passes out. And he sleeps for 15 hours. Yeah, I always kind of read the drink as something that knocked him out. You know, kind of in a good way, something medicinal. But it could just be that he's exhausted. He was just in a car accident, and he was exhausted before that. Right. Uh, he wakes to hear that Charlene has been fixed up, but apparently 15 hours is not enough for the storm to have passed by, because people are still killing time telling stories. That's right. Charlene is here, conscious and healthy, albeit with a bandage on her head, and everyone is telling stories, uh, and she tells him to shut up and listen to the story. And that is the beginning of the story by Mr. Geharis. Yeah, now even though the inn is kind of old-timey, Mr. Geharis's story has a very modern setting, with subways and cars and things of that nature. So here's where we begin properly A Tale of Two Cities, illustrated by Alex Stevens. There's a man... Robert, who has lived in the same city all his life. He's left the city, of course, but he's never actually lived anywhere else. We see this guy, he's uh, kind of a milk toast office worker looking type. He looks a bit like Gregory Peck. Oh, sure. We don't know what city it is. It's strongly implied not to be New York. Okay. Because it has a working mass transit system. Ooh. <laughs> you could use that joke almost anywhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> On the subway, Robert fantasizes about the train being transported to a different planet and all the passengers being forced to talk to each other, form relationships, maybe eat each other, that kind of thing. Yeah, he wonders who would, who would make love to who, who would be eaten should they run out of food. I wrote Constantine found out, because Constantine was on a train once where he found that stuff out. Oh, who would eat who? Yeah, yeah, gross. And who would make love to who? Was there any of that? No, just rape. I thought it was all horrible. <laughs> it was all raping. All horrible. No lovemaking. We do learn that Robert feels vaguely ashamed of these daydreams. Which he should, because, you know, when Constantine found out, none of it was good. Right, yeah. So he has a dull job. We don't find out what it is, but he's sitting at a desk in a grid of 
many identical desks. It looks like the apartment. You mean where Jack London works in the movie The Apartment? Yeah. Yeah. It's that kind of dystopian interior design. Do you remember how in that movie all the floors had a different quitting time? So that the elevators wouldn't be overburdened? No, but it makes sense. This is kind of wonderfully imposing, this high-angle shot of all of the desks with the giant windows looming over them. Uh, on his lunch break, Robert, instead of eating with his co-workers in the cafeteria, he likes to wander the city. That's his thing. Yeah, he just goes and sees places and sites that he hasn't seen before, and he considers each new site that he hasn't seen before to be a treasure. Robert saw the city as a huge jewel, and the tiny moments of reality he found in his lunch hours as facets, cut and glittering, of the whole. Is there any person in the world who does not dream? Who does not contain within them worlds unimagined? So that's Gaiman kind of paraphrasing his own epilogue to A Game of You. It did not occur to Robert that each of his workmates had something that made them also unique, nor did it occur to him that his passion for the city was in itself out of the ordinary. Sometimes he would walk the city at night, once while doing so he heard a scream, which he attributes to a nightmare. He also likes to uh, stand at the river that winds through the city, and at nighttime look at the way that it reflects the city lights. Ooh, that's a cool setup. And he says that the city has a different face at night than it does during the day. So, while walking the city one lunch hour, he sees a glittering silver road behind a street market. He goes behind the market, but the silver road isn't there anymore. He ends up preoccupied with this. He can't concentrate at work. He ends up working late and missing his usual train home. Yeah, and instead of his regular train, an unfamiliar Art Deco train pulls up. Yeah, this is a pretty rad Art Deco train that we see for one panel here. There was only one other passenger on the train. He was standing solitary in the compartment Robert had entered. A pale man with wild black hair, dressed in a long black coat. And we recognize Morpheus. Robert realizes the train isn't stopping at any stops. He asks Morpheus if it ever stops. Morpheus just stares at him. Robert backs away and the train begins to slow. So once he questions the dream logic, he starts to find his way out of the dream. He begins to wake up. He heads through an archway onto the street. And at first everything feels familiar, though the archway is gone as soon as he passes through it. Yeah, he finds himself in a completely different city, one with the familiar scents and sounds of his city, but he doesn't recognize any of the geography. And as someone who wanders the city for fun, he should know his way around. Right. He sees people, but never close enough to actually talk to. Some of them shimmer and vanish when approached. Furthermore, it gets light and it gets dark on very rapid cycles, but there are no stars, moon, or sun. Right, so there's... Kind of light and kind of dark, but never night or day. He finds his way to the river at sunrise, although there is no sun rising. And there is an old man sleeping on the bridge. Yeah, who at first he mistakes for a pile of rags. The old man says that they're in the city, although Robert knows this isn't the city he knows. The old man's been here a long time, though, and he's started to put together a theory. I have been here for many, many years. How many, I do not know. And in that time, I have had much time for thinking. Perhaps a city is a living thing. Each city has its own personality, after all. Los Angeles is not Vienna. London is not Moscow. Chicago is not Paris. Each city is a collection of lives and buildings and has its own personality. If a city has a personality, maybe it also has a soul. Maybe it dreams. That is where I believe we have come. We are in the dreams of the city. That's why certain places hover on the brink of recognition. Why we almost know where we are. Right. Robert asks if he believes they're sleeping. The old man corrects him. No, we're awake. We are in the dream of the city, which is sleeping. Right. 
The flicker people, he thinks, may be waking people who find themselves in the dream of the city just for a moment. Now, the old man seems happy to stay here, but Robert wants to find a way home. The old man just hopes the city doesn't wake and end them all with its dream. That's kind of a reference to Through the Looking Glass. We are told that above them, vast cyclopean walls loomed and towered. All of a sudden, the old man spots something familiar to him. He runs off, and when Robert goes after him, he's gone. Right, but Robert now believes that he can get back to his city, the waking city, if he can find a place that's familiar to him. Yeah, so he spends weeks, days, months, years... Yeah, when he sees the old man run off, Robert has stubble, and by the end of this page he has a full beard. So some time is passing. Robert also sees in a store window a little diorama of a ship being menaced by an octopus. Hold that thought. One day in a, in a rooftop garden at the top of a skyscraper, he meets a woman dressed entirely in black. Yeah, she's very pretty. I thought this looked like death, except she doesn't have the eye tattoo. Yeah, I thought it was death too. Because it says, the woman reached out a hand. Robert thought that she was going to touch him, and had she touched him, he would have been lost forever. Yeah, so I don't know if she's death or just, like, something that tempts him to stay in the dream. In any case, he does not succumb to that temptation. Right as she's reaching for him, he notices a familiar doorway behind her, one that he passes every day on his way to work, and he bolts off towards it. And comes out in the real world. In the 70s, apparently. Oh, oh, I see. He comes out and he finds this yeah, guy the, with, a, with an afro and a, and a medallion standing there. Yeah, the, the art strongly suggests that he's in the 70s now. Right, and Robert's world looked very 50s, with its clean-cut suits and its office jobs. When Mr. Geharis met Robert, he was living in a small village off the coast of Scotland. At this point in his life, Robert has an Edgar Allan Poe mustache. Way to go. Yeah, well done. Do you fear that one day you will return to the dreams of the city? I asked him. Is that why you live out here? If the city was dreaming, then the city is asleep, and I do not fear cities sleeping, stretched out unconscious around their rivers and estuaries like cats in the moonlight. Sleeping cities are tame and harmless things. What I fear is that one day the cities will waken, that one day the cities will rise. Well, that's a pretty stupid thing to be afraid of. <laughs> but all right, my friend. Since that time, I have walked with less comfort in cities, says Mr. Geharis. And then he closes the issue saying, who's next? Okay, so that brings us to Sandman number 52, Cluricon's Tale. The tale is illustrated by John Watkiss. On the cover, we have a shirtless man with photos scattered across his chest, an owl perched on his shoulder, and a weird cyclopean drawing of a head for a head. Yeah. In the bathroom of the World's End Inn... Grant runs into a zombie. Yeah, a zombie or some kind of uh, death incarnation. Yeah, it's worth noting that Klaproth and the people from the necropolis of Letharge look kind of pale and gaunt and dead, but they are in fact living human beings. Well, they pee. <laughs> or else there would be no reason for this meeting. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's right. This uh, particular zombie, Klaproth, tells that he was also caught in a storm and that he is from the necropolis Letharge. As I said. Yeah, his brougham was walked into a river. <laughs> that's a kind of that's a kind of carriage, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a horse-drawn carriage. <laughs> and even he has he's his own barouche. <laughs> and even though he's uh, dressed as a 19th century undertaker, Klaproth says, this is a pretty fusty dive, eh? What does that mean? Fusty? Yeah. <sighs> well, I think that it means 
kind of a combination of old and stuffy, but I could be wrong. Smelling, stale, damp, or stuffy. Old-fashioned in attitude or style. Gotcha. Yeah, so the joke is it's a guy who looks like he's undead saying that something smells old. Oh, I see. Yeah, that's funny when you explain it to me. That's how jokes work. <laughs> Sometimes for me it is. <laughs> okay, so back at the table, it's Clericon's turn to tell a story. And he, um... He is demurring. He's making a show of being dragged into telling this story. Yeah, he he says that it's a dry and unexciting story dealing chiefly with local politics and city history. And he adds that he can't invent fiction, so it'll have to be true, and he's unable to embellish. So we are told. Yeah. And he says that it takes place in the city Aurelian. Which is to say the city of Aurelia? Yes, which so is I itself took Aurelian. I took that to be like the city of Paris would be like the city Parisian. <laughs> yes. It's a sort of a vocal stylization. If you're thinking that he's a douchebag, yeah. <laughs> well, we already know that about Chloricon. Yeah, we found out that he was a douchebag in uh, Season of Mists. Yeah, when he gave his sister to Morpheus as a gift without telling her. Well, Titania gave her as a gift. He just didn't tell her. He does douchebaggy things. And Titania's a meanie. As we're about to find out, the art in this particular story is sort of anime-inspired. That's what I wrote down. We open on this full-page shot, but for the inset of Titania, of the city Aurelia. And it's this beautiful sort of Romanesque city. Although, to be fair, Roman statues weren't actually white when they were new. They were painted. Oh. So, this is Chloricon remembering the last time he was in Aurelia, 1,200 years ago. And he remembers it was a place with real class. But it was much more recently than that he was summoned by Titania for a job. Yeah, she wants him to go to Aurelia of the Plains and prevent the formation of an alliance between all the cities of the Plains. Yes. Now, she asks him how long it's been since he was in Aurelia. He says, 1,200 years and he had to leave hurriedly. She hopes that it was long enough. Since they are mortals, they've probably forgotten him in that much time. He also mentions here that instead of going on this errand, he had been hoping to visit his sister Nuala in the Dreaming. Yeah, although it's been years since he said that he was going to visit her soon. Right. They are immortals, though, so maybe a handful of years isn't all that big of a deal. Right. When he gets his assignment, I want to point out that he says, Iron Nails! As oh. That's a curse. That's his cuss, yeah. So Clericon has given three scrolls to take with him. One identifies him as Mab's envoy. Mab and Titania are apparently the same being here. One is a map of the planes. That's planes with an I, even though this story takes place in another dimension. Ah, yes. And one is a long essay on the current political situation in Aurelia. I resolved to read it when I had the time. <laughs> That's a good voice for that line. Clericon rides for a page. Like most people who ride a horse in Neil Gaiman, he passes a bunch of weird interesting stuff that we're not going to get any more information on. Yeah, there's like a bog with zombie hands sticking out of it. It really seems like the planes have gone to shit. <laughs> and when he gets to Aurelia, so has it. Yeah, he arrives to find the city in ruins, its gates unguarded. He says, understatingly, it was no longer as I remembered it. He is eventually found by Brother Cabriolet, who is to escort him to the Palace of the Psychopomp. A psychopomp is a being that transports souls to the realm of the dead. Oh, so kind of like Karen. Karen? The boatman of the River Styx. Oh, yeah, Charon. I thought you meant Karen Page. From Daredevil? Yeah. No. 
<laughs> she seems to get people killed a lot. Karen Page is the cost zero card with the highest HP in Marvel Battle Lines. So you're sending Karen Page out to fight Thanos and stuff? No, I don't actually have her in my deck. I mean, I have a, I have a Karen Page card. I think you start with one. Okay. But I use my Foggy Nelson card to fight Thanos. So. <laughs> okay. Basically, the situation in Aurelia, you have the Psychopomp is the religious leader. You have the Carnifex, who is the emperor. And back on page two, we were told about the tomb of Karis Carnifex, the eighth emperor of the plains, which we now learn has transformed gradually into the royal residence as Cabriolet is leading Cloricon up there. Right, the current Psychopomp has also declared himself to be the emperor. Right, and... There's something of a, almost a subtle pun to the idea of a king who lives in a tomb being called the Psychopomp. As well, the idea of people living in tombs is going to resurface when we get to Claproth's tale in a couple of issues. Also, just like in the last issue, Cluricon is lost in the city because it no longer matches his mental map. Oh, good point. Here's the Foggy Nelson card. I thought you'd enjoy this art. Wow, this is crusading lawyer Foggy Nelson. He looks so intense. He looks sort of like an angry anime guy. Yeah, that's true. He's got a little paunch there. It looks like that wrestler in Air Guides who would eat infinite ramen. Oh my god, that dude! <laughs> that game was the best. What was it? God Bless the Ring. Yeah, that was the subtitle. What have you. So Cabriolet leads Cloricon into the Psychopomp's court. It is crowded with petitioners. We see that he taxes everybody and also takes bribes in order to do his job. Yeah, he's a real asshole. Yeah, he offers Cloricon some food. And some companionship. Not from him. Not no, com- not, no, not companionship no. from him. That's not, that's not that kind of a palace. <laughs> it's not the palace of pleasure. <laughs> Which we know, well know is located in Baghdad. Right. Cloricon rejects all of this, so the Psychopomp sends him to his room. He dashes off a quick note to Titania. Did you know that the new Psychopomp of the Plains is also the physical ruler of Aurelia? And he whistles for a bat... Which comes and takes his letter away. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. I think the idea here is that the delivery of the letter is secret. Right. As he's led into the room, he is told that there's a guard on his room for his protection, and that it's dangerous to walk the halls alone as he could be mistaken for an intruder and killed on sight. They're kind of circumlocuting the subject here, but he's essentially a prisoner in his room. Right. It's dangerous to go alone taking this. <laughs> Uh, at this point, a shady guy tries to get into Clarecon's room. I don't know if that's a shady guy. You don't think he's shady? That's just Otho, the uh, Emperor's uncle. Yeah, he's got like a big fur vest. I don't know, this guy looks like some kind of a pirate king to me. So far you're just listing things that are awesome. <laughs> he's got this short bushy beard and this big furry vest. A sack of money on his belt. You're still doing it? <laughs> Okay, but he definitely is told that he can't come in and bribes the guard to get in. Well, that, that's just how things are done around here. <laughs> when in Rome. When in Aurelia. Cloricon saves Otho the cost of a bribe by popping out and pretending to recognize him so that he can be let in. Otho, we learn, is the Psychopomp's uncle. The Psychopomp's name is Myron. Not spelled in the usual way. And Otho tells Cloricon a bit of how Myron became both... Psychopomp and Carnifex. After Myron was chosen by the spiritual electors to be Psychopomp, he produced this treaty stating that if the Carnifex had no heirs, then the reigning Psychopomp was also to rule the city carnal. 
It was sealed within the seals of his predecessor. It could not have been a forgery. And seeing that the Carnifex's only male heir had just been killed in a street brawl, well, who was going to protest? Now Myron's made it to the top twice, and he wants more. Yeah, even though he's at the top of both the city and the religion, he also wants to conquer the other cities of the plains. Otho doesn't approve. He would rather have a psychopomp who believes in the Holy Twins and a Carnifex who has the best interests of Aurelia at heart. Anyway, he says that the whole thing was idle chit-chat and excuses himself. Now, so now that he's come in and said that he'd kind of like to depose the Pope-slash-King, does that make him a shady guy? No, because that Pope-slash-King sucks. <laughs> so his shadiness unshades everybody else? Assassinating him is a fair... It's a totally... Well, I guess he doesn't say he wants to assassinate him. Assassinating him wouldn't be that upright. But wanting to depose him is totally upright. Okay. Because he sucks. Cluricon narrates for a little bit about fairy magic. We also see him sleep and wake and go to council in the morning. So something weird is about to happen, and Cluricon offers only a brief, unsatisfying explanation in advance. We are not creatures of spells and grimoires. We are spells, and we are written of in grimoires. Fairies also have a power, he explains, uncontrollable, that sometimes they will say true things. And these things we say are neither glamour nor magic, neither prediction nor curse, but sometimes what we say is true. Even if you're a tremendous liar like Clericon. So he's sitting at the meeting, the great summit of all the diplomats of all the cities. What was the name of that game that we played with Gabe that time? Oh, the one about politics in Borgia-era Italy. Right. Yeah, I can't remember the name of that game. These guys look like noblemen from Borgia-era Italy. And as he's sitting here in this council, not really paying attention, Clericon feels such a truth building up, he says, like a sneeze or an orgasm. Oh yeah, he says it's coming out, will I or never so? Meaning whether he wants it or not. So quite against his will, he jumps to his feet on top of the table. He's on top of the table here, right? Yeah, it sure looks like he gets on top of the table. And he mutters, oh no, not again. And then in a different style of speech bubble, much more grand looking. Both Psychopomp and Carnifex, you've gained great heights through death and lies. But now the dead begin to rise, and debts forgotten time collects. The dogs will chew your carcass yet, amidst your bones the rats will romp, and even history shall forget you, Carnifex and Psychopomp. And he thinks to himself, oh shit. Bring him here, says the shitty old pope. The Psychopomp orders him arrested. Worse though, they remember the last time a fairy caused trouble in Aurelia and they are prepared with cold iron bars and chains. That was probably him. Yeah, no, that was... <laughs> this is all his own making. <laughs> I don't know what those threats were about, fairy, but when all this is over, I'll pop your eyeballs out with my thumbs and piss in the sockets. This I swear. And he spits in Cluricon's face. And then we see Cluricon having the cold iron manacles put on him by this guy who looks like he belongs in Jack Kirby's fourth world. Oh yeah, he kind of looks like Desaad. Yeah, he's got, he's got a hood over his face and this sort of smashed, brutish-looking face. He looks very apocalyptian. You know that stuff His Holiness was saying about how he'd pop out your eyeballs and piss in the holes? He will, you know. I've seen him do it to people. Thanks. Have we mentioned yet that Clericon has dark hair in this story and blonde hair in the frame story where he's telling it? Yeah, that is a bit of a thing. And this is clearly at the same time frame, because we're going to learn this happened right before he came to the Inn at World's End. It's just an art choice, I guess. So he falls asleep in the cell, which takes him to the dreaming, 
and there he meets his sister Nuala, who, once again, is an anime person. Unlike how he himself, or most of the other characters, are drawn. Yeah, well, she's pixie-ish. And I think this is meant to be Nuala's true form, the one that she was reverted to after her glamour was taken away. Even though she actually looks pretty rad here, with her green hair and her pixie wings and her sort of kaleidoscopic green dress. She looks way better than him. Yeah, Clarkon has kind of a passive-aggressive moment here, as he says that he's bound in iron chains behind iron bars, but he's fine, don't worry about me. Oh yeah, he just says everything's gonna work out. But she tells him nobody's fine on their own, people need people, and she goes to get help. And that's when he wakes up. Oak and ash and thorn, I thought, but the queen would be angry when she heard I was dead, and I can't say I was thrilled about it either. Yeah, he thinks the whole thing is a stupid dream, but then a smart dream shows up. Oh, it's Dream, King of Dreams. The Dream King. A good day to you, Cloricon of Fairy. Morpheus walks into the cell. He's here at Nuala's request, albeit reluctantly, since he doesn't care if Cloricon lives or dies. Cloricon, it is one to me whether you live or die. It is not one to your sister. And she serves me well and faithfully. I would not see her needlessly distressed. So anyway, he disintegrates the chains and opens the door. He invites Cloricon to leave this plane with him, but Cloricon's got a job to finish. Yeah, Titania will be mad at him if he doesn't finish what he came to do. Cloricon gives Morpheus a message for Nuala that he owes her his life, and if he had a soul, that too. Right, if fairies had souls. I will tell her. Your sister, she has a good heart, Cloricon. Farewell. So, he apparently, using shape-shifting, yeah. goes and spreads all kinds of rumors around the city. Yeah, bringing down the psychopomp, and in the process, of course, the alliance, which is what Titania sent him to do. It's definitely worth mentioning here that the rumors all basically point to how the psychopomp stole power by fraud and murder. That he forged the document that made him Carnifex, that he had his predecessor's heir murdered. Yeah, and there's even a rumor that he had his predecessor himself murdered. Poisoned. It's amazing how much one can accomplish in an evening, if one is willing to expend a little effort, and to walk briskly. So, as the city falls into unrest and the rioting begins, the psychopomp locks himself into an impenetrable room. Yeah! In the tombs below the palace, an impregnable room for which he holds the only key, just him and Cabriolet. And, of course, the bones of every previous Carnifex. He says it's a lie that he had the previous Carnifex murdered. He's actually addressing the bones as he says this. Why would anyone poison a man with terminal cancer? Waste of good poison. And he starts plotting his brutal revenge against the people of the city. Right. He's going to pronounce a sentence of death on every tenth man, while as conductor of their souls, as the church's leader, he damns them all to hell. And I will find out who is responsible for this insurrection, and I will... Pop out their eyeballs with your thumbs and piss into the open sockets? Yes. Brother Fastcar is revealed to be none other than Cloricon himself. The psychopomp lunges for Cloricon, but is grabbed by the skeletal hand of his predecessor. You killed my son, hollow priest. You stole my throne. And the psychopomp is defenestrated. Yeah, in terror he backpedals hastily, a little too hastily, because he goes through a stained glass window. The tomb is apparently way above the city, not below it. And he falls to his death. Right, yeah, we've seen that it's kind of on a hill, so it makes sense that its lowest level would still be above the city. Yeah, okay. But wait, if it's on a hill, how can it be the city of the plains? Uh, Yeah, you know, I always got the impression that it was at the edge of the plains. Oh, okay, okay. Maybe that's something I made up. 
But now the dead begin to rise, and debts forgotten, time collects. Clericon recites his words from earlier and says, Well, well, well. On the way down the stairs, I had a really invigorating sword fight with the palace guard. Clericon escapes in three panels, which reminded me a lot of Joanna Constantine's escape from Paris in three panels, way back in number 29. Well, the hard part was over. As he does, he passes by the now rat-eaten corpse of the psychopomp. The part about the rats also coming true. Oh yeah, that's a good line. The dogs of the town had already gnawed off much of his face, and soon the rats would be clamoring through his ribcage. And on his way home, he says he ran into this storm, and that's the story. Charlene says she doesn't believe a word of it. He says it's all true except for the sword fight with the palace guard, which he threw in to add verisimilitude, excitement, and local color to an otherwise bald and insipid narrative. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if the joke is that Cloricon is underselling his story, or that his life is like this and he finds it kind of boring. Oh, I think he thinks he just told a great story. Okay. I also like that his lie is so, like, he puts so little effort into the part of the story that's a lie. He's just like, oh yeah, I had a really invigorating sword fight with the palace guard. And then, like, and he the next it ten seconds later, and then, like, ten seconds, he's like, that part was it. <laughs> just like that episode of Arrested Development where Ron Howard says, one of these people will die. It's her. She's the one. <laughs> Oh man, we're practically an Arrested Development podcast at this point. Charlene asks how the dead Carnifex comes back to life, and Clericon says, How should I know? I lived it. I didn't make it up. And somebody else asks if he is now going to see his sister. Enough! I will not be questioned further! Yeah, Clericon refuses to answer any more questions. It is time for somebody else to tell a story. So, that brings us to Sandman issue 53, Hobbes Leviathan. The title is obviously a reference to Thomas Hobbes and his 1651 treatise Leviathan. It also made me wonder if we're going to see Hob Gadling in this issue. Well, we'll have to save that surprise for a few minutes from now. <laughs> or, or not at all. <laughs> right? <laughs> what? I mean, if he's not in the issue, there is no, like, moment where we definitively find out. That would, be, that would be the end of the I podcast. Guess the, yeah, I guess just the end. <laughs> so keep listening in suspense for the end of this podcast. Yes. The tale is illustrated by Michael Zulian Dick Giordano. On the cover, we have a shirtless man now seen from the back, possibly the same shirtless man. Got a double on covers there, with a photo stuck to his robe and a sailing ship projected across his back, and he is facing a statue of a woman with a star for a face. I wrote star head and sailing ship back. That's how I described that cover. Yeah. So we open on a close-up on a red-headed boy, perhaps 14 or 15, and he says, Call me Jim. Now, this is about to be a seafaring adventure story, and Call Me Jim invokes both Moby Dick, which opens with the line, Call Me Ishmael, and And Lord Jim. I was going to say Treasure Island. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. There's at least two protagonists named Jim. Before I tell it, though, I have a question I was wondering if someone here could answer for me. Where are we? The woman in the blue sash says, You're at World's End, being at the end of the worlds. She is once again pouring a drink. Maybe she runs the place. It seems that way. He goes on to ask, But what country is this? What place? World's End is its own place, Jim. Jim narrates briefly that he and his crew ended up here by being caught in a storm, like everyone else. And And as he does, we see that the inn at World's End is indeed on a cliff, as it's portrayed on the cover of the first issue in the story arc. So presumably Jim and company arrived by the sea approach to the inn. Right, yeah. He says that they found land where there shouldn't have been any land. And they saw the lights of the inn, and 
in the game. He says he thought for a minute that it was Sailor's Green, but he knows Sailor's Green isn't real. Fiddler's Green. But sailors go there, right? Not fiddlers. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> to hear fiddling. <laughs> Alright, fair enough. But yeah, he says he knows Fiddler's Green isn't real, which amused me. Well, actually, what, what Jim says is that he knows that all of his life since he left Singapore has just been an opium dream. And he's not really here at all. Oh, that's a weird thing to say. Yeah. At this point, Jim gets in an argument with Brant about what month it is. June 1993. It's September 1914. Enough of this gabbling, says a lion man. Presumably the one being addressed by Mumford and Sons. I'm for the story. And Jim jumps into it. Okay, so Jim was born in Sydney in 1899. And when he was 13, he snuck out in borrowed clothes and he joined the crew of the Spirit of Whitby en route to Singapore. It was bound to happen, you see, because he was the son of a sea captain. Right. From his father, he inherited wanderlust and fascination with the sea. By the time he reached Singapore, he had earned a little money. He didn't end up in debt to the captain like a lot of sailors do because he didn't smoke or drink. I guess you have to buy those things from a captain. I wonder how come Jim didn't want to get drunk. We may find out in time. Next, he sailed on the Pyramus, but he jumped ship because the captain beat him. And that is how he ended up on the Sea Witch under Captain Herbert Burgrave. Right, one day while they were waiting to put to sea, they are approached by an Englishman with a beard trim and neat. Like Jim, he's a redhead. He asks to see the captain. It's implied that he and the captain have an argument, and he ends up as a paying passenger, which Burgrave doesn't like much. Right, Burgrave doesn't like passengers who don't pull their weight, but Hob has paid his way and there's nothing Burgrave can do about it. So he is, in fact, Hob Gadling. Burgrave says, this is Mr. Gadling. And he's taking passage back to England, and Jim is to be his steward for this voyage. Oh, that explains why they spend so much time together. I must have missed that. Jim talks about the romance and majesty of the moment where they hoist the sails, and they are underway. And within half a day, they're out of sight of land. I stood there sweating with the line in my hands, and the sun broke above the horizon, and the gulls mewed and the gray sea turned to sapphire, and I knew this would be a good voyage. Now we get a little rundown of the crew. Yeah, the Sea Witch has crew from all over the world. I like this part. There was a tall Norwegian and an equally tall Swede who hated each other's guts. They'd shipped together before, and there was an old quarrel there, though I never knew the bones of it. Yes, although we can kind of guess at what it is. Both of them have tattoos on their arms with a, a heart accompanying the word Nancy. I guess that makes them the Nancy boys. <laughs> we also meet Nathaniel Donning, the best sailor on the ship. He's a black American, and Jim says he would be captain if he were white. Apparently the chief engineer is called Donkey Man because the captain remembers the day when the role of the engines was filled by a donkey in a treadmill. Now, I didn't know that sailing ships had engines. Yeah, and they're just about to talk about how it's not a steamship. Right, yeah, they uh, have a conversation... Is that the captain there who's saying this? This is the first mate, a Californian named Canby. We find Jim in a conversation with Canby, who says the tall ships will be obsolete in ten years. It's all going to be steamships, but Jim says that steamships suck. Yeah. What's the point of being a sailor if you're living high above the ocean instead of cool and comfortable below decks, cooled by the water, listening to the sea go by? You're a romantic. Why be a sailor if you're not? Their conversation is interrupted. It seems that there has been some food thievery going on and they're just about to corner the thief. Yeah, they catch this guy who's been stowed away in the hold. 
He is a short Indian gentleman with a nice suit and glasses, and he is headed for Liverpool quite urgently. And as far as I know, we are never going to get a name for him besides the Indian gentleman. Well, the captain likes this not one bit. Yeah, Burgrave says he's going to put him in the brig until they reach Aden, albeit with food and water, because he's not a cruel man. But before he can do that, Hob intervenes. So he gives the captain more money that he doesn't want, and decides to pay the Indian gentleman's way. Meanwhile, the Indian gentleman is very talkative, but no one really wants to talk to him. They all think that it would serve him right if he got clocked in the head and thrown overboard. Right, which Jim warns him is what could have happened if he were on a different ship. Then it is a good thing that I chose to travel on the Sea Witch. We find out that the Indian gentleman, he gets his room by putting out the bursar, Mr. Stewart. Ah, yes. He gets put up in the bursar's cabin. And Mr. Stewart is bunking with the men. Yeah. On the deck that night, we find Hob chatting with the Indian gentleman. Hob is saying how mysterious the sea is. The Indian gentleman thinks he's talking about mermaids, a subject of some enthusiasm to him. Ah, you are talking about mermaids, then. The cold, fishy women with clammy kisses and scaly breasts. We see him make a grasping gesture. Oh, he's even saying breasts right as he's making the, the motion. Yeah, unsubtle. Nohub says something even more mysterious than that. And the guy says, Speaking of women, I hate women. <laughs> that is basically right. Well, Jim joins them, but the Indian gentleman will not be dissuaded from the subject of, quote, the fickleness of women, and he begins a story along those lines. And Gatling tries to get him to shut up. <laughs> Gatling says, this sounds like a stupid story, I don't want to hear it. We are pondering the sea at this moment, and I was also telling Mr. Gatling about the fickleness of women. And I was telling him that he was talking out of his kyber. Is that Cockney rhyming slang? Kyber pass for ass? Oh, that's possible. I just thought that he was, like, sort of... The bowels are a sort of passage. Hmm, true. And the Khyber Pass is a very wide pass. <laughs> Isn't that how you get from Afghanistan to Pakistan? I think so. Oh, the Indian gentleman makes a reference to Cockney slang, too. Let us go up the apples and pears together. Yes, it is indeed how you get from Afghanistan to Pakistan. Before we move on, I want to point out the gentleman's impression of someone being drowned by a mermaid. Now I am dead, oh dear, oh me. Now I am dead, oh dear, oh me. Yeah, which reminded me of the overly verbose distress dialogue in Jed's dreams way back in a doll's house. The doll's house. Oh, oh, we are flying. And a moment later with the spooky bird. It is tickling my hand. Ha ha, oh dear. Sunlight? No, for I am a vampire. <laughs> yeah, this kind of like ancient children's book way of speaking like, I have to be telling what's happening at the same time as I'm reacting to it. Anyway. So, would you call this an art shift here? Yes, there's something of an art shift. Zuli's art for the shipboard story is highly detailed and realistic, and this is also pretty detailed, but it's a bit thicker line, and we have these, like, these scroll motifs at the edge of each panel. Kind of reminiscent of P. Craig Russell's art for Ramadan, although not nearly as stylized. Okay, so the so, gentleman is telling his story. So, yeah, we're in a story within a story now. Two layers. Three if you count. World's End itself, the story being told by Neil Gaiman. Good point. Once there was a king who had a wife that he loved more than life itself. And we're going to find out that that's literally true. A holy man comes to see the king. He is turned away until he demonstrates he's a holy man by cutting off his hand and reattaching it without spilling any blood. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, and he says that he has this fruit that grants eternal life. King asks why the holy man didn't eat it. King's no fool. For three reasons. Firstly, I am an old man. Immortality should be given to the young and those in good health. Secondly, I desire to remain upon the karmic wheel of death and rebirth, 
on my path to eventual rewards far greater than living forever. And thirdly, I am too scared to taste of it. Now, in the center of the four panels of each page during the gentleman's story, we have an animal native to the Indian subcontinent. These serve no purpose, they're just cool. I was going to say racist, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, These serve no purpose, they're just racist. <laughs> it's, it's setting the flavor of this as a story set in India, I suppose. Okay, so they decide to perform a little animal testing on the fruit. To prove it isn't poison, the king has a small slice fed to a mongoose. They give the mongoose a little bit of the fruit, they put the mongoose in the fire, and after the fire burns out, the mongoose is still there, just scampering around. So, even though a little tiny slice of it can turn a person immortal, it seems that people are acting like only one person can eat the fruit. Wow, that's a good point. The mongoose is indestructible, but they don't ever think of splitting the fruit for the rest of the story. Nope. So, the prince, because he loves his wife more than life itself, gives it to his wife. Right. He gives it to her, but it turns out she is cheating on him with the captain of the guard, and gives him the fruit. The captain of the guard is in love with a very high-class prostitute, and gives it to her. Clever, and seeing the potential for a reward in this, she brings the fruit to the king, and she tells him how she got it. The king rewards her. He has his wife and the captain executed, without torture, since he does love his wife. Mm. And then he eats the fruit, dresses himself as a beggar, and walks out of the city, never to be seen again. I want to point out, it actually says he dresses himself in the clothes of the poorest beggar in his realm. So he finds the poorest person in his entire realm and takes that man's clothes away. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck you, guy! (laughs) This is not somebody who can bounce back from the loss of those clothes. No! He's not ready to absorb that financial difficulty. (laughs) Well, maybe he bought them. I suppose that could be true. He hands the kingship to his brother, right? That's what it says? Yeah. It says, making his brother king in his stead. Oh, okay. So if yeah. you're ever the king of anything, I'm, I'm going to have this in mind. That just in case I should ever find the poorest person in all of America, steal their clothes, eat an immortality-granting apple, and walk out of my life, you would become king? You're going to wait, the, America is the thing you're going to be king of? Elvis Costello is already the king of America. Yeah, valid point. So heading back up a level to Jim's tale. Jim hates this story. I think it's a stupid story, he says. Well said, Jim. (laughs) Hob agrees. It's not women that are unfaithful, it's people, it's everybody. Yeah, and men have more opportunity. Jim quotes a bit here of The Golden Road to Samarkand by James Elroy Flecker, whose name is not really James, it's Herman. And somebody also says nobody lives forever, which is kind of a funny thing to say in the presence of Hob Gadling. Yeah, well, yeah, he doesn't buy the story in part because nobody lives forever, and he tells a very short story, without cutting into visuals of that story, it's just Jim telling it, about his friend who fell from the rigging and died on the last voyage. We threw him overboard. First he floated, then he tipped and sank. You're a deep one, young Jim. Like the sea, you've got hidden depths. And he makes this point for the second time now. Do you ever wonder what goes on under there? There's more sea than there is land, after all, and we never see more than the tiniest fraction of it. Anyway. Hob can sense there's a storm coming. And true enough, the next day, the storm comes, and Hob and Jim mostly stay inside Hob's cabin for the storm. Hob tells Jim stories, including one about slave ships. We know that Hob used to be a slaver. Yeah, he he knows about slave ships. Jim has a lucky charm that's supposed to prevent drowning, but Hob has a different strategy. It's easy once you get the hang of it. Don't drown. 
Very funny, Mr. Gadling. It's not a joke, Jim, although if you take it too seriously, you're in deep trouble. So he leaves the room, and Jim finds an old tintype of what he thinks is Hobbs' parents. Right. The man looked enough like Mr. Gadling to be his father. He finds this old picture stuck between the chest and the wall, and he sets it up where Gadling can see it. The next day, when he cleans the cabin, the photo is gone. Now, at this point, we get a couple of days where the ship is becalmed. Everybody tries various rituals, but there is no wind. Eventually, they have to have the captain throw his oldest pair of shoes overboard. And we see Jim explaining this to the gentleman. Of course it works. If you really need wind, the skipper has to throw old shoes overboard. So Jim's kind of buying into that. Yeah. And at first it looks like it works, but then instead of wind, it's a wave of fish coming towards them. A vast swarm of fish bears down on them. They're jumping and leaping out of the water. Hundreds of fish jump up on the deck and the crew catches them for food. And then somebody shouts, land ho, which is impossible because they're in the middle of the sea and haven't been moving. Right, and then a second later, the land is gone. And then the deck lurched and tipped and bucked and the world went mad. And as we turn the page, we find this gorgeous two-page spread of the ship, dwarfed by an immense sea serpent, coiling up out of the waves. Yeah, this is the titular Leviathan. All the men see it, but it quickly disappears back beneath the waves, and nobody comments. The crew are all awestruck, some of them shed tears. Jim tells Hob, We've got to tell everyone. I mean, it's real. It's not imaginary. We saw it. At that point, the wind begins again, and they make good time to Aiden. Later, we have Jim and Hob talking about the sea serpent. Jim is surprised the crew aren't talking about it. Well, we'll dock in Aiden this afternoon. As soon as there's shore leave, you could go into the city, find some newspaper correspondent, and tell him what we saw. Would he believe me? Hmm, you could bring him back to the ship. He could ask around. The truth would probably come out eventually. Mr. Gadling, why hasn't anyone seen it before? Maybe they have. There's tales of sea serpents, after all. But the sea is a big place, Jim, and deep. For example, nobody's seen a giant squid that I know of. We just suppose there have to be some because they've seen the huge sucker marks on the side of whales. Big place. Lots of secrets down there. So after taking some shore leave in Aden, Jim returns at nightfall to find Hob and the gentleman talking on the dock. We come into this conversation in the middle, but Hob is saying, There's few enough of us around. Least we can do is watch out for each other. Yeah, he seems to be talking to the Indian gentleman about being immortal. Right, so the Indian gentleman is also immortal, so he probably is the king that ate the fruit. Yeah, and that's why he's so upset. Everybody knows one story. The gentleman leaves the young folk to talk on their own. Yeah, doesn't he say that he should be in the arms of Mr. Morpheus? Yeah, it is past the hour when all well-meaning folks are safe in the arms of Mr. Morpheus. So, there you, there you go. So Jim's had all day ashore. Hob asks, who have you told about the sea serpent? Nobody. I didn't think you'd say anything. Like I said, we've all got secrets, and you don't want to draw attention to yourself. Isn't that right, girl? And we get a panel of Jim looking very girlish indeed. And surprised. Yes, Jim is a girl. Her real name is Margaret or Peggy. She admits here that she's basically passing herself off as a boy because men can be sailors and girls can't. She asks how Hob knew, and he said that he's seen it many times before. Some of it's the voice, some of it's the hands, and a lot of it is learning to see what you see and not what you think you see, if that makes any sense. They sort of change the subject here to Hob's secret. Jim overheard that Hob owns the ship. 
but he says when he gets to Liverpool, he's going to pass himself off as his nephew, who has no interest in ships. And as he speaks, he pulls out the old tintype that Jim found and throws it into the sea. Right, it's time for Hob to switch identities again. Yeah, and it had been mentioned in Men of Good Fortune that Hob got out of shipping after realizing the slave business was an abomination. How old are you, sir? Old enough to have learned to keep my mouth shut about seeing a great bloody snake in the middle of the ocean. Yeah, so the world is weird. It's full of weirdness, lots of weirdness under the surface of the world, like sea serpents under the surface of the ocean. To me, this called back both to Doll's house, Rose says at the end, eventually you have to forget the weirdness and just live your life anyway, and a game of you. Every person is an ocean, every person hides multitudes under the surface. Nicely caught. Hob and Jim agree not to tell on each other, although Hob says, Given enough time and the right audience, the darkest of secrets scum over into mere curiosities. Anyway, no one will believe either of us. Back at the world's end, Jim is saying how uh, he's shipped all over the place, but is going to have to give it up soon, because she's getting too old for the trick of passing herself off as male. But she doesn't know how she can leave the sea behind. When she does, she says she'll take another name to start her new life. But for now, you can call me Jim. And that brings us to the end of issue 53. So we've seen the basic structure of World's End here. There's a bunch of folks trapped in this inn, and they all tell stories. Some of them are recurring Sandman characters, and some are not. Right. Like the Sandman stories in general, they tend to involve an encounter with Morpheus. Although this one didn't. Just another familiar character. No, the mention of the arms of Mr. Morpheus is the only appearance of Morpheus in this issue. And a lot of the stories that we run into seem to involve more stories being told. The Indian gentleman tells Jim and Hob a story. Cloricon tells all kinds of rumors. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Robert hears the story of the old man, how he became trapped in the dream of the city. And Geharis is actually repeating Robert's story, which was told to him. Yeah, so this is sort of more of a Fables and Reflections style story arc than a, you know, a big epic. Yes. Although, it's all tied together by the reality storm. Now, if I'm not mistaken, this is actually Sandman's tie-in to the Zero Hour storyline. Oh, really? Okay. Are we in 1994 already? Mmm. I want to double-check that. I was pretty sure that the reality storm was part of an ongoing DC story. Yeah, this ran from July to December of 1993. Zero Hour Crisis in Time began in September of 1994. Okay, so it's, so it's later. So I was mistaken. In any event, the reality storm that we see here turns out not to have causes rooted in the rest of the DC universe. We will see a little bit about what the reality storm's about in the last issue. Oh, okay. So before we move on, I mean, what did you think of these stories? I think, well, I was happy to see Hob again. Mm-hmm. And Jim's story was my favorite one. Yeah, I liked that story, and I thought it did a good job of uh, thematic tie-ins with the rest of the series, even though it's one of the few stories that's not about dreams and Morpheus outright. Yeah, I thought that it was cool that we got a big-ass two-page spread of a big old sea monster. Yeah, that was really cool. And, you know, it's apropos with the telling of stories, the suggestion that there is always much more beneath the surface. Yeah. Each of the stories that we see here is a chunk of somebody's life, but that's not all we see of the person. It's what they choose to present to themselves. What do you think of Clericon's story? Well, Clericon's story is exciting enough, although there's really no one to root for, except for Nuala, I guess. Clericon's a pretty charmless narrator. <laughs> you don't root for Clericon, even though he's the 
protagonist, and even though the psychopomp is a total asshole? Yeah, no, not really. So it was exciting and interesting, but could have been better. Yeah, I think it does come through a little bit that Chloricon is an asshole. He's a pay-evil-onto-evil kind of guy. He's here to split up the alliance, which probably isn't necessarily a good thing. And he brings down the psychopomp who needed bringing down, but more for the personal insult than anything else. Yeah. And as for the story about the guy getting trapped in the city's dream, Mm -hmm. I found that one a little dry. It's, you know, sort of a spooky concept, but I didn't get much out of that art style. And the idea of, like, what if the cities wake up, I just found kind of silly. Okay, yeah. Gaiman talks in a lot of issues about the kind of universality of dreams, and here he's ascribing dreams to inanimate objects and concepts. And while that's kind of an interesting expansion of the mythos, there doesn't seem to be much to those dreams yet. Agreed. What do you think of the, in itself, the device and the story being told there? You mean the world's end? Yeah. That's pretty cool. Perhaps I find the frame story more interesting than anything else. Okay. The idea of characters from all planes of existence, you know, all sorts of interesting folk is really compelling. The meeting between Klaproth and Brant in the bathroom is almost more interesting than what happens when they leave the bathroom. (laughs) You know, they go back out and they just listen to somebody tell a story. I mean, that feels like a scene that Gaiman had had in mind for a while, just like, guy goes to the urinal and there's a zombie there and they chat and then go back to the room. (laughs) Maybe he actually met a zombie at a urinal once. Yeah, that's probably it. Probably. What's happening? He's kind of toying with being an anthology series here for a handful of issues. Yeah, and, and these are far from the first issues that have not focused on Morpheus, but rather on people who meet Morpheus in passing. Yeah. Anything you want to add? No, I think that just about wraps it up. In our next Sandman episode, Prez Rickard, Klaproth's tale, and Charlene raises an objection. But first, join us next week. We're going to wrap up Dangerous Habits, John Constantine Hellblazer. That's right. Join us next week for Falling into Hell. Vertigize is written and hosted by me and Sean. I handle social media. Sean produces the show. And our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. If you like our show, why don't you visit our website at vertigize.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes plus show notes on every episode. If you want to contact us, I'm available on Twitter, at Vertigize. I am at BlankCastSean. We have an email address vertiguys at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash vertiguys. Hey, if you're listening to our show and you've enjoyed listening to our show, why don't you interact with that podcast technology to leave us a positive rating or review? We'd be happy to call out positive reviews on air. But as always, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Every day seems a little longer. Every way loves a little stronger. Come what may, do you ever long for from me every day it's a getting closer going faster than a roller coaster love like yours will surely come my way well so i read the swamp thing and you mean the second reign of king swamp boy yes the second reign of king swamp boy it's just it rolls off the tongue faster than swamp thing (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Swamp Thing is like the best title in the history of comics. <laughs>
It's way better than man thing. <laughs> it's way, way better than giant size. Giant size man thing number one. <laughs> also, he just has better powers than man thing. Well, whoever knows touch. Nope, that's not it. Whoever knows touches burns at the touch. <laughs> whoever knows evil burns at the touch. Whoever knows fear burns at the touch of man thing. Yeah, that's right. Fear, not evil. Yeah. Be better so you if can it was be evil. evil, but not afraid, and you'd be immune to the man thing. Yeah, yeah. He just goes around. He hates fear. He just goes around finding scared people and <laughs> burning their faces off. Yeah. To prove it isn't poison, the king has a small slice fed to a mongoose. Mongoose? Mongoose? A mongoose. <laughs> the king has a small slice fed to the man thing. However, <laughs> however, the holy man feels the touch of man thing and is burned because he has fear. Right, yeah, he's scared of that apple.